The Word of God that forms the basis of our meditation today is taken from our gospel lesson. I have two verses, 13 and 15. Who do people say that the Son of Man is? And who do you say that I am? This is, would you pray with me? Father in heaven, again, we thank you for the privilege that you have given to us by bringing us to your house of worship, where we're reminded yet again of what you do for us. Do not allow this moment to escape us, the opportunity for us to again confess who you are, and that determines who we are. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. So, who Jesus is determines who we are. The U.S. News and World Report begins a cover story entitled, In Search of Jesus, this way. Whom do men say that I am? Jesus once asked his disciples, according to Matthew's gospel, the disciples answer, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, one of the prophets, revealed how even then there was little consensus over the perplexing preacher from Galilee. And that controversy continues to this day. Jesus asks, who do people say that I am? What is the public opinion out there? Surely you're aware of it. You run into it, hear it in conversations. Maybe you actually pick up on it as you listen to TV, radio, it's out there. Is Jesus brought up at all? Is he important? And if he is, how do people think about him? But even more importantly than public opinion is your personal belief regarding who Jesus is. This is a persistent question that doesn't go away. In fact, I'd, I'd say we ask this of ourselves regularly through life. Have you ever been confronted with some overwhelming tragedy and the first thing you said is, why God? You obviously thought that God, Jesus, would maybe act different than allowing you to experience frustration. We do that. We always are asking or should always be asking who do I say Jesus is? Now, we also have persistent answers to the question. Back in the day of Jesus, the disciples say, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah or one of the prophets. There's obviously elements of truth in all these, especially when you start unpacking the suffering and the death of some of the prophets but there was no room in these popular expectations at all for a suffering Christ. And you even see that amongst the, the disciples themselves. Now today, Jesus is regarded as a peasant Jew, a movement founder, one who overcame social barriers, a healer, a motivated a motivating master teacher. However, this kind of this designer approach to Jesus, who champions our causes and excuses our ideology, 
would have scarcely gotten Jesus crucified in the first place. Think about it. If this is really Jesus, even the Pharisees would like him. The scribes would too. They would be able to see the tongue-in-cheek when they were confronted by Jesus. <laughs> oh, well, he's a guy that's out there working. He's just trying to motivate the people. He's but a peasant. We can only listen to him so far. He's a fool. He's a drunk. He's a disobeyer. How would Jesus ever have come to the conviction of death if we could just form him and define him in our own opinion of him? Now, Pastor Prem's probably going to preach on this text next week, so I'm not going to spend an awful lot of time on it. But Jesus' response to that would be the same as his response to Peter when he spoke about he was going to Jerusalem to suffer and die at the hands of men and on the third day rise again. What did he say? You don't have in mind the things of, of God, but the things of men. In fact, he says, get behind me, Satan. These ideas of a designer Jesus or Jesus fitting our own definition certainly aren't from God. And sadly, this even includes our definition and how we recognize sin. And thus, what kind of a Savior do we really need? There's a persistent problem, all right. And the persistent problem is this. Our controlling beliefs determine what kind of Jesus we are looking for by defining what kind of Jesus is and is not possible. How important it is for us to answer the question, but who do you say Jesus is? Are you aware of times where you're frustrated? God doesn't act like this. Jesus should be like that. Over the last couple of weeks, we've seen Jesus acting like Jesus. At the very same time, we see Jesus not acting the way the followers of Jesus wanted him to. Send the people away. Where's Jesus? We're out here in the middle of the water, in the middle of the storm, and he's sleeping. What are you doing? Our governing belief system, how we think about Jesus, determines the kind of Jesus we have. Interesting. I could stop the sermon right there if you're all paying attention, and we could say amen, and we could go home thinking about that question. It's an important question to answer. Why? Making Jesus fit into our preconceived notions is the common condition of all people. Jesus replied, Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, for this was not revealed to you by man. What Jesus is basically saying, Peter, you didn't come up with this idea, and no human being taught you this idea. It's impossible for man to come up with the kind of God that the Scriptures teach us about. The God who in love created all things. Adam and Eve formed perfectly in the garden, were given perfect free will. And they chose to disobey God rather than obey God. 
But what does God do? Does he start over? No. He promises them his son. A seed of the woman will crush the power of the evil one. All you got to do is read through the Old Testament. And what do we see? God saving the people turning away. God punishing the people repenting. The people turn away over and over and over again. If this was happening at your home, you'd be pulling your hair out. Every time you turn around, you have to tell your... Oh, I guess we do that anyway, don't we? Are you frustrated at times like that? And yet God isn't frustrated with us. He loves us. He doesn't like our sin, but he loves us as his people. Now, so darkened is our understanding that we cannot draw correct conclusions about or make right confessions of who Jesus is. That's why the disciples of the day, the people, the pulse of the crowds was, it's got to be something else. It's got to be a, a guy like this because that's what they had to go with. And then comes the defining moment of Peter's confession. Peter's confession says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And yet, is that unlike any of the other confessions we've heard about God? A couple of weeks ago, we were in the book of Deuteronomy. The Lord did not set his affection on you and chose you because you were more numerous than other people. For you were the fewest among people. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your fathers that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery, from the power of Pharaoh, king of Egypt. Know therefore that the Lord your God is God. He's, a, he's the faithful God, keeping his covenant of love to the thousand generations of those who love him and keep his commandments. From the beginning of time, the relationship that we have with God is, is actually determined by God himself. And so Peter is accurate. You are the Christ, the son of the living God. In those words contain all the summary of the biblical gospel that we have from the beginning of time. God promised his son. His son was born. He was anointed. He was commissioned to suffer and die on our behalf, on behalf of the whole world, and then to gather together his church, his people, like we are gathered here today. I know you all got up all by yourself, didn't you? But God was the one that was motivating you to go worship, to come in here again, to find uh, Again, context for your life of faith. Those who uh, confess Jesus are truly recipients of God's living and divine favor. This confession itself is also a gift of God's divine favor. 
because man's relationship with God has always been a gift of God's divine favor. And we see that also in John chapter 15. Jesus says to his disciples, you didn't choose me, but I chose you and appointed you to bear fruit that will last. Fruit that will last, that is connected to Christ's divine were the branches. The persistent answer for all New Testament believers is that we are the successors of Peter's confession. We are the people who believe in and confess Jesus Christ as Lord. And as in the case of Peter, the, the faith in our heart and the confession of our lips are God's divine gift of revelation to us. I can come up with a creative sermon, maybe attack it in a way you never thought of it before. But without the Holy Spirit, how do you believe? Faith comes by hearing. Hearing comes by the preaching of Christ. God is the one that works the miracle of faith. God is the one that strengthens the faith that we have been given so that we may continue to believe and continue to live with God's definition of himself as our definition of who God is. The Holy Spirit works in us today through the gospel, through the preaching of God's word. Maybe even caught it at the very beginning after our confession. I said, God, our Heavenly Father, has sent his son Jesus, our Savior, and as a called and ordained servant of Christ, I forgive you all your sins in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Who gives me the opportunity, the, the privilege of saying that? Well, actually, in our text, Jesus does. In fact, it isn't just Pastor Reimnitz or Pastor Preem or any pastor that gets to say this. This is a message that we all can say to each other. You saw it in the waters of holy baptism, in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. In that act, at that moment, Laney received all the blessings of Jesus Christ as her Savior. The very saving faith that I have, and you have, was given to her. Now you say, but she's just a baby. I know, but unless you receive the kingdom of God like a little child, you'll never enter it. You see, when you get a little bit older in your faith, this is where we start wanting to redefine Jesus. We want to make him fit our lifestyle and our idea rather than letting him be God. As Pastor Preem pointed out last week, that's who he is, and he a, does a pretty good job of being God, doesn't he? As does Jesus, our Savior. Now, in the Jewish tradition... The temple was built on a rock because that rock was thought to be the center of the world. Today, that's where we see the Dome of the Rock put up there by uh, uh, Islamic followers. But for us, Jesus is the rock on which the church is built. He is indeed the center of our world. Like the wise man, we don't build our life on sand, which is our flippant way of feeling or thinking about God from day to day, but rather on the rock of Christ himself, who doesn't change. 
And even though we may falter, we may wander here or there with this thought or that thought, the consistent thought is that Jesus is our Savior. Peter says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. That's who he is. And even again, if we falter from here to there, that definition of Jesus stands forever. That's the faith into which you were called. That's the faith on which the church is being built, one member at a time. And he continues to build the church even today. It's all about the scriptures, the power of God's word. And the center of the scriptures is Jesus himself. Now, the building of the church is the work of the Holy Spirit, but the Holy Spirit works through us. Those who confess Christ's gospel of forgiveness to each other. Thus, we are the possessors of the very forgiveness of sins. You have the ability to forgive the sins of those who repent and, yes, thoughtfully, wisely withhold the forgiveness of sins from those who don't repent. Very careful, because sometimes that's more about me than it is about the person. Forgiveness of sins. It's not okay that you did that. It's not okay that you didn't do that. But I, as a child of God, forgive you. Don't do it anymore, but I'm not going to hold that against you any more than Christ holds my sins against me. What an awesome power to live in forgiveness. What an awesome gift to be able to go through life without having to justify myself, without having to come up with another way of defining who I am. I don't do this. I do this. Well, look at all this I've done. Look at all this I haven't done. And yet in a moment, I can throw it all away because of a simple temptation that I've struggled with my whole life. And where am I then? Back in the doldrums. Wondering why I'm here, what's my point? The recognition of sin releases us to understand the forgiveness of sins which God so graciously gives to us in his Son. This is the ground of our faith. This is our daily comfort and joy. We are the people of his favor because he said so. Blessed are you, Simon, son of Jonah, For this was not revealed to you by men, but my my Father in heaven. For you to understand that Jesus is the rock of your salvation is to understand the divine work of God in you. And when you share that with others, when you give the very forgiveness that you've been given to others, you are also sharing but the divine grace that God has called you and called me to. All those who believe in Jesus, his son. Like I said at the beginning of the service, we're halfway through the second part of the church year. I find that the question kind of changes in a sermon like this. What is my response to all Jesus has done for me? Well, my response is all Jesus has done for me. It's not what I do. It's what Jesus does and how that unfolds in each one of our daily lives. Peter, like the rest of the disciples, we seek to joyfully confess with others 
Jesus our Savior. How we define Jesus thus defines who we are. And we are chosen to be the children of God. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.